Hello, and welcome back to Metastation for the second of our season one rewatch doubleheader podcast. Third, third. Oh, no, wait. So, I guess second of the doubleheader. Yeah, the second doubleheader. Yeah. Total. I know what I'm about. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I had. I should have let you finish your sentence. It's okay. That's all right. We're still friends. Okay. <laughs> okay, I'm going to because we didn't say our names. Okay. Okay. <laughs> 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 Say who you are, Claire. But you have to use part of that because that was yeah. cute. No, that was real. We're really cute. <laughs> uh, my name's Claire. I'm a 34 year old writer in Portland, Oregon. My name is Erin. I'm a 34 year old English professor in Mississippi. And that time, I did not forget my age, but I may have forgotten my name for a second. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Maybe this is a good time to tell people that like we record the intros after we're done with the podcast. And we've been at this now for like four hours. So yeah. like we're like yeah. if our intros always strike you as being a little weird, like that's why. <laughs> we literally just hit the uh three hours and fifty-nine seconds of talking point. <laughs> yeah. Which is why I no longer know who I am or where I am in the world or that I do anything other than this. What a ride we have taken on this day. <laughs> We've gone on longer than the Olympic opening ceremonies, I think. I think we've officially outlasted them. I think so. Them. Well, you know what? I think that's appropriate. I think that's fair. I was going to make another joke there, but again, it's been four hours now. <laughs> Hang on. Yeah, it's been a long 15 day. 15 more seconds. We'll hit actual four hours and my brain is fried. Also, it's 12.17 a.m. where I am, and I've been awake since 6.45, so I'm also at the point where my brain is just like, I'm going to go to sleep whether you want me to or not. I mean, I feel like that's fair. Okay, so today we're talking about episode four, Murphy's Law, and episode five. Oh my god, I can't remember anything's name. <laughs> uh, episode five is Twilight's Last Gleaming. Yes, okay. Yeah, episode four, Murphy's Law. Episode five, Twilight's Last Gleaming. We are a goddamn train wreck. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's stop talking and then... Edit to the part where we started talking four hours ago when we were still coherent and knew what was happening. Get ready for us to sound so smart and awake. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! And scene. <laughs> uh, oh, oh my God, God. We are delightful. We really are. Okay, so the first thing I want to talk about picks up from last week. So we got an ask on the Metastation Tumblr yesterday when we're recording, but I guess it'll be probably like last week as of the time this goes up, about uh, what we had been talking about in the last podcast about uh, Wells and the way that the narrative erases him and erases the work that he did for the delinquents just as the characters ignore him. Well, when we were talking through that last week, I mean, we sort of talked through the ways that the show formally does that, you know, so the sort of directorial choices and writing choices that make invisible what Wells has done. Um, but we didn't really talk about what it meant. Part of it was that at the time I hadn't really, I hadn't really decided, you know, and part of it was just that I thought it was better to give everyone 
what's there. But we got an ask from somebody saying there's been a lot of talk over the years about the issue of Wells's race and how that either directly influenced the choices that they made or the way that it unintentionally changes the way that the kind of significance that his storyline has in various ways. Most of that has focused around his death and the fact that, you know, Jasper, a white kid, was originally supposed to die, but he was kept alive. And then Wells, the black character, is killed. So the ass is basically saying like, so, you know, you pointed out his invisibility. Do you think that that's a part of the racism of the show or something that something that is, you know, contributing to a kind of racist narrative? And the answer that I gave is that, I mean, I really don't, I'm certain that it was in no way intentional or conscious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I suspect that the writers and creators would probably be fairly disturbed to hear that. I think that for those two episodes, for 102 and 103, it's fairly incontrovertible that that's what's happening. And the fact that there's a black person who is doing this enormous amount of labor uh, upon which the delinquents as a kind of mini society depends for, for survival and that his labor has been erased, it's sort of the, the ways that that calls up the history of African-Americans and slaves you can't separate it from that cultural context. Exactly, exactly. So so what I said in the in the answer was I think it's kind of irrelevant at the end of the day whether the the writers are quote are, are racist in any way subconsciously consciously whatever that this is the text that they put out there and that that side of it is there kind of you kind of can't avoid it. I have a feeling I I think you could make a case for for this being an issue of, you know, unintentional implications that arguably are the result of the writers not having thoroughly enough interrogated the images and the stories that they're telling, you know? So from that perspective, I think you could say perhaps... To me, it feels sort of of a piece with the conversations that we had talking about Lincoln and Lexa. There was a story that they were intending to tell that the audience watching it cannot and does not separate from the cultural context in which we are watching that play out on television. It's the perpetuation of, I think, unexamined tropes that are, I'm I'm sure, not intended to create that emotional response, but we watch television in the world that we live in. And so we bring to it the world that we live in and so whatever the motivation might have been or the story and narrative decision making behind it the effect on the viewer of wells's labor being totally overlooked of perpetuating the barrier gaze trope with lexa it's not possible for the viewer to remove them which means that we do need to talk about them as though they are real because they are real even if they're not intentional exactly and and the fact that they could put that up on the screen in any of these cases and believe that it's not perpetuating a troubling trope or participating in a kind of history of, say, the erasure of of blacks and of black labor is in and of itself, I think, a function of privilege, you know, because it either means that they're totally unaware of it which is something that you could only be unaware of, you know, if you're basically like a white person. Like, you know, this is something that like a few years ago, I'm white. There's a, you know, a few years ago, I probably wouldn't have thought about or noticed necessarily, you know, and I've, I've been, right. I've, right. I've educated myself more since then. But like, if I hadn't been educated and educated myself, then I just would not 
I would never think about it, right? You know, so this, and I wouldn't think about it because I don't have to think about it. And the same thing with if, even if they're aware that such tropes existed, if they believed that they could do it without participating in it, that's also kind of a function of, of that sort of privilege. I think for those two episodes, I think that's, that would be kind of where I land with that. I, I, one thing I said in the ask, and I, and I think this is true, I, I actually don't think Wells' death is an issue on, on the race front, I think, for me. Yeah, no, I don't either. It's so plot necessary. And you absolutely, absolutely could not remove that death or replace it with another character's death and have anything like the same resonance or narrative possibility open up as you do with Wells. So so I, I don't think that Wells' death is a problem. I think Wells' life is the problem. I think that's a very good way of putting it. In a contrast with like Lincoln. So so in this case, I think actually Wells is what happened what happened with Wells when he was alive is the issue. I don't have any issues with his death because I think that actually, like, I mean, they, almost if you want like a textbook case of like, yes, this death, death was necessary, it's Wells. Yeah, oh yeah, because if you think about the number of different character arcs from, you know, from Jaha sort of spiraling into craziness to leading into Charlotte, which leads into Murphy, which leads into Clark and Bellamy, which leads into sort of the the power structure at the of the camp and the kids being challenged, you know, which leads to- Murphy getting- exiled which of course is going to be yeah. crucial to the plot in the second half of the season when he returns that wouldn't have happened so so there's just like everything from here on out in season one i think certainly on the ground is predicated on wells being murdered by charlotte and even like you said even like you pointed out jaha's story in season two which leads into the city of light so i mean wells's death is the starting point for everything that happens from here on out. It would truly be a completely different show. I think you could make a pretty powerful argument that the story as we know it really kicks off when Wells dies. That in its own way, everything else that happens is sort of prologue to that. And it's certainly, I think, just in terms of the context of how we watch television shows, it's the moment where this show, I think, announces the kind of show that it's going to be. And and in in a way that I think is really unlike some of the more troublingly executed deaths that we've talked about in other seasons, this one in particular, I think it's done so well and the fallout is handled so well. Like, at least for me, it was one of the first moments where the show begins to grab you and you can't let go because of the way that it pulls you into, like, ramping up and up and up and up and up the stakes in a way that I find narratively really satisfying. I agree. And, I, you know, it's funny because I almost think that, you know, the tonal shift that happens with Wells's death, that, like you said, that that moment of like sort of announcing this is the show we're going to be. That's the thing that all of us like felt like you talk to people, they started watching the show. And a lot of times, you know, it's they're kind of like, and eh, I was sort of eh. and then Wells died. and I was like, holy fuck, now I have to pay attention. So I think I think that's absolutely true. But it's interesting because, you know, like, I've heard a lot of people or I've seen a lot of people making ar- arguments about Wells's death being about shock value, and that's the problem with it, you know, like killing some, killing the black character for shock value. And so I, I almost think that that 
shift has been overplayed. You know, like like people just talk about that. So then it becomes possible to say like, well, it's just about it was just about shock value. It's just about like changing the tone, which which makes it easy to not notice all the ways that it also completely shapes the narrative. So and they're both true, obviously. But I think the fact that it shapes the, the events and the plot and the narrative going forward is what makes it not a shock value death. You know, shock, it is shocking, but it's also all these other things. To me, I feel like what what lifts it out of fridging territory or trope territory is the fact that it touches so many different storylines. Like, you can't make the argument that, you know, Wells dies to further one person's story because it impacts Clark and it impacts Jaha and it impacts Charlotte and it impacts Murphy and it impacts the overall relationship among the delinquents on the ground in terms of sort of setting off this kind of Lord of the Flies mob mentality. Like it, it, it kicks into gear so many different things that I think that it's a, it's a really good example of the show, I think, handling a character death really, really well. And really my only real negative about it is just that I, I feel like given how short of a like chronological period of time all three seasons of the show cover i wish that it it had it was more present in seasons two and three but season one i think does right by wells yeah so that actually brings me to the thing that i wanted the other thing that i wanted to say so in the ask when i was answered the ask on tumblr uh, the other day one thing i said was that we're gonna keep an eye on it but i don't think that wells is really you know like he kind of disappears after he dies, which perpetuates the invisibility issue. And I was very wrong about that. <laughs> yeah, I had forgotten that too. Yeah, so so I had, I had had it in my mind because, you know, we're rewatching the first season now, but I hadn't watched, I haven't rewatched the first season in like a year or something like that. So it'd been a while. And, and it was actually, it was like amazing because I answered that ask. And then right after I answered it, I started rewatching 104. And the first shot of episode 104 is we get a shot of the fence, you know, that Wells, of course, said, like, we need to build a fence, we need to build a wall. So we get a shot of the fence, and then the camera pans upward over the wall to show Clark at Wells's grave. And I was like, oh, my God, like, there it is. That's the narrative being like, we remember, here's the, here's the fence, here's Wells's grave. These two things are linked, you know, like, he is responsible for this fence existing, um, and then later on in the episode, you know, they're, they're talking about Wells and Bellamy says, like, fear of the grounders built that wall. I mean, Bellamy basically says we have to keep the kids believing that the grounders killed Wells because that's what's making the wall build, which again ties Wells back to Wells is responsible, you know, for that wall, for their safety. So, yeah, so the show remembers Wells and it remembers what he did. So even though none of the characters ever say they don't like call it Wells as well or they don't talk about it, which actually makes sense because what Wells said, I mean, I think he just said it to, to Finn. He's like, we need to build it. We need to gather stuff to build a wall. And then presumably we don't really know how it happened. Presumably like Finn was like, oh, yeah, we should build a wall. And then somebody started build, building a wall. So, I mean, within the story, I don't think probably most of the kids have any idea whose idea it was. They just started building this wall one day. But the show remembers, the narrative remembers, and and it's giving us this, like, in this memorial, the scene, that first scene of 104, which I had also forgotten, we get an entire scene that is a memorial for Wells. And the first shot of that scene, which is just all about remembering, about, you know, like, Clark talking about her memories of, of Wells, is Wells's wall. And then, you know, like, so it pans up, and we see Clark, and then the very next thing that happens is Finn comes around, 
the real point of that scene is that he brings her that colored pencil, which reminds Clark, and I hadn't thought about this before either, that the, the significance of that scene beyond just kind of like, oh, it wasn't Wells such a good friend. But in the context of the way that what Wells had done had been so invisible and erased and forgotten or not known about when he was alive, what Clark talks about in that scene, you know, when he gives her the pencil, she says, Wells was always bringing me things to draw with. And he was he was trading his own his like food uh, or whatever he had to get her things to draw. And she says, I wasn't supposed to know that, you know, like he never told me and I wasn't supposed to know. But I but I knew and I was like, there it is right there. Clark's saying, you know, that's that's Clark saying this is who Wells is. He did all these wonderful things and he kind of pushed away credit. But I but I knew like secretly I knew the real Wells and I knew he was doing this. This is kind of the show giving us a moment of memorial for who Wells was and including the way that he had been erased and forgotten and and remembering him for that stuff. Yeah, and and really, I think pointing at in a really literal way, both with because I noticed this too with the with the shot of the wall sort of being the first thing we see, but also with her making really explicit the fact that this is the person that he's always been. It solidifies the fact that all of those things that we were noticing in the last couple episodes were an intentional part of the story they were telling with yeah, Wells. They were intentional part of Wells's character. They were saying yeah. that this is who he is, and this is what he does and the, you know this is part of the tragedy of wells which again that is a totally legitimate story to tell about a person and i still do think it's a problem that they that they clearly never thought about how that story looks when it's tied up in labor and the character is black but i do think that yes. that that the story they were trying to tell was about wells as this being you know almost pathologically self-effacing person who only is sort of like recognized in death and that's supposed to be this like it's supposed to be a very sad and tragic story yeah. Oh, yeah. So a certain measure of redemption for Wells and for what they were actually intentionally trying to do in 102 and 103, I think. What I liked in, in the scene that follows this one, it was really interesting. You know, we don't we don't really get a sense of exactly how many days have passed since they hit the ground or, you know, even since Wells is dead, like presumably like it's been enough time to bury him. It's been like at least a day or two. But it is interesting the change in those overhead panning shots of the whole camp at work. The crowd shots in 102 and 103, it's all the like fighting and like making out and carousing and drinking and the sort of like whatever the hell we want. Yeah, it's all chaos. Yeah, it's, a, like, it's total all total chaos. chaos. And so, so when Bellamy tells Clark later that fear of the grounders caused by Wells' death is the most significant sort of tool they have to maintaining order, we see that right away because we see there's tarps out and they're gathering water and everyone is building the wall and things are pretty orderly and structured and and the group is is for the first time really beginning to behave with a handful of exceptions, but but um, to operate like a society in at least this one very simple, straightforward way. And that's a huge shift in the kind of group dynamic. And you see, you know, they have like tea, organized teams of workers, you know, have like people at different stations. So they're starting to kind of to to settle into some kind of structure. 
And, and, you know, and I think this that that first scene, too, where they're building the wall. I mean, this is again, this is continuing the the way that they're they're starting to try to nuance Bellamy. You know, it's like that huge shift from 102 where to where he was totally the antagonist and, you know, totally set up as kind of the asshole. And then in 104, picking up on the way in 103, they had sort of started to build some sympathy for him by by pairing him with Charlotte, we see that again where, you know, this time he's kind of being set up in contrast with with Murphy. So the person who really actually believes in chaos and actually believes in, you know, kind of whatever the hell we want and, and who sort of is operating under that way of being is Murphy, right? You know, he's the one who's just barely being held back by Bellamy. And we saw that a little bit in 103. The issue with Murphy, you know, the reason that Bellamy kind of has to keep him close by is because if he doesn't, you know, he's like this agent of chaos. So I find that opening scene really interesting, too, because, you know, it, like it's very effectively sets up why everyone's going to be really gung ho about hanging Murphy, because he's just a, he's terrible. You know, he's a horrible person. Like he pees on um, the one guy. I can't remember his name, but yeah. So we get this very strong contrast between Bellamy, who like jokes around with Charlotte and and helps, you know, just goes right in and starts helping build the wall. And Murphy, who's kind of really playing up this like, I'm one of the boss men abusing the workers kind of persona, which is obviously like really instrumental in moving Bellamy towards being one of the official leaders and then also towards setting up why everyone hates Murphy. But I think the brilliant thing to me about that, and like this is a brilliant episode, like 104 is a great episode. It's so good it's the first great episode of this this show you know 103 is great and it kind of grabs you 104 really really pays off and i think the the most brilliant thing about 104 to me is that it makes what happens to murphy in totally understandable in terms of the ways that the other characters react to him you know because even bellamy is becoming like palpably uncomfortable with murphy's behavior And it makes you, as the audience, kind of satisfied with what happens to Murphy. But at the same time, Murphy has never actually does anything really wrong. He's an asshole. He's He's a really unpleasant person. But Murphy hasn't killed anyone. I think it's like, it's perfect because what it does is it makes Murphy a true scapegoat. Like a classic scapegoat. By which I mean, he is... The, the person or the thing onto which all of the sins and the mistakes of the community are projected, which is then expelled from the community in order to purge it so that the community can sort of re-cohere and move forward. A scapegoat was literally a goat that they would have a ceremony where they would put all this, all their like sort of community sins on and then send it into the wilderness. Like that is literally what happens to Murphy. What I think is really pointedly and well sort of deftly handled in, you know, in Murphy's storyline in this episode is that he's also in some ways like he's sort of the Cassandra figure. He's the guy telling the truth and nobody will listen because he tells them, like he calls out, he accurately and correctly calls out when they all want to, string him up and it's only Charlotte's confession that frees up Clark to be able to cut him down when the mob shifts direction but then those same people don't all rally to kill Charlotte and and Murphy basically calls them out on like you want me dead because you don't like me you know like it isn't it isn't justice 
It's just vengeance. And he's the person saying that. But because of how the show has sort of aligned our sympathies and made him this person that it is just absolutely impossible at this point in the story really to root for, it puts him in a position where both to the other characters and to us, the audience, he's saying something that's objectively true and none of us want to hear it. On a fundamental primal level, you're drawn to the idea of even though he didn't commit this murder, that it's more satisfying to punish him anyway because of what we know about Charlotte and because of all the ways we've seen him be a petty asshole. And so it sort of puts you, the audience, in a way that I think is really fascinating into that same sort of morally uncertain, ambiguous place that the majority of the delinquents are in where it's like, okay, all right, she confessed, so we know you didn't do it, but like, low-key, we all still kind of want to hang you (laughs) anyway. Everyone was so ready to believe Clark. Yeah. When she came out of that tent and was like, it was your knife, you know, like, Everyone is instantly like, float him, you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, oh, shit, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, like there was like they were clearly 100 percent emotionally ready to believe that that was the case and and enact their revenge for all the petty little indignities that he had subjected them to. It kind of exposes the dark underbelly of what had been emerging as a delinquent society, which which I also think it, it really continues from 103. You know, they, they do such a like brilliant job in 103 of making Charlotte's murder of Wells equally and indirectly connected to uh, Bellamy and Clark. She gets motivation from Bellamy by like misunderstanding him, basically. And she gets means from Clark by watching her mercy kill Adam, which she also misunderstands. Charlotte conceptualizes killing Wells as a mercy killing in some way too for herself. And she doesn't really realize, I think, until after he's dead what it, what it really is. So, so they are kind of equally complicit in getting Charlotte to the point where she kills Wells. And what happens with Murphy, I think is also, and very, very deftly set up and executed, Bellamy and Clark are equally complicit in what happens there, too. And blaming each other, rather than sort of taking it on themselves. Yeah, and I think, like, even, like, going back to the reason why Murphy has the level of power that he has in that camp and authority to be the asshole that he is is because Bellamy took him under his wing when he started out. Bellamy only did that because Bellamy recognized, I think, as we kind of see in 102 and 103, Bellamy recognizes that, you know, Murphy has to be kept under control. He has to be kept close by. So Bellamy is responsible for Murphy being kind of in the position that he is. Bellamy is also responsible for... I, we talked, I talked about it in another, um, one of our previous, previous podcasts. Bellamy had up until this point held on to his authority in the camp by pleasing the people. So when they're all chanting to hang Murphy, he's in a position where he really can't not do it because that like crazy mob chanting that is appealing to them and giving them what they want is how he had established himself in the camp. That's how they understood him to be their leader. So, you know, everything everything that happens to and with Bellamy in this chain of events is the totally logical result of the choices that he's made up until this point, including, you know, like everything with Charlotte, but even beyond Charlotte. And then Clark is the same thing. Clark is is sort of set up as being complicit in that she totally misunderstands 
the people to whom she's speaking and what their reactions are going to be and what they want to hear. So she she says in a, a very, just like a heart, heartbreaking, you know, like, the people have a right to know. And I'm just like, ah, you know, Jake. She's so her father's daughter. Yeah, she's just trying to be her father's daughter. But she doesn't have the ability to sort of understand, read the room kind of, you know, like she and she also, for the most part, hasn't spent that much time with the other delinquents. You know, she's kind of been off with Jasper and Finn and Monty and Octavia. I think like at this point, she doesn't really know them and they don't really know her. She kind of has been operating under this presumption that there is an automatically correct way of doing things, that there is something like justice that is unconnected to situation. You know, she has a sort of idea of justice, of this idealized kind of notion of justice where there is a kind of, there is a, a just thing to do in a situation. She still believes that in, in some sense there is an objective right and wrong. Yes. Which is Abby's thing too, you know, is is believing that there are some things that are just right and that are just wrong and you just know them in your gut. And and so it is frustrating to you and other people behave as though those things are situational. Her idea of, of what is right and what is wrong and the need to do what's right is sort of unconnected from practical real world consequences. So she kind of has this idea, we're going to do the right thing. I'm going to identify the murderer that is the right thing to do. And she doesn't really seem to think much. Be or, or she presumes that everyone will be like, well, I don't actually know. You know, like, I don't actually think that she really thought beyond that. Because she clearly didn't have a plan for what they were going to do with Murphy once they accused him of murder. <laughs> I think the short-sightedness in that choice that she makes, that what she's thinking about is the burden of them keeping important information a secret weighs on her. I don't think she's thinking about the fallout. I think she's thinking about how it feels to know something that affects all the people around you and to be holding that in instead of sharing it, you know, because objectively she feels like the right thing to do is always to to tell the truth, always to give the information that you have. And that so it's a really significant leap when we see her by the end of this episode, when they decide to exile Murphy instead of kill, like the sort of the, the compromise path that she and Bellamy kind of co-negotiate, where she concedes the fact that you're right, there are times where, you know, she kind of comes around from her dad's position to her mom's position. Like there are, there are times where the panic and chaos and utter insanity that are caused by giving people information that they don't have the ability to like handle processing is too risky and so and it's and it is an interesting juxtaposition of clark realizing that that was a gamble she shouldn't have made backed up against that we'll see in the next episode of you know abby doing the opposite and then it does work out but we're seeing both of them you know in this position where you're having to really think through the unpredictability of humans operating in a mob mentality and and the ways that that's not something that you can necessarily gamble on the outcome of and Clark sees sort of the the worst of it you know I think I think her kind of striking that bargain at the end with Bellamy you and I we're gonna make the rules our little group you know we're gonna be the people who are gonna establish ourselves as leaders I think is her first moment of sort of really conceding that it's too big for her to do on her own. When they're initially discussing it, Bellamy basically is just like, we keep this to ourselves and we never tell anyone. 
He's not like, we'll eventually have a trial. He's like, well, you know, dirty little secret. And Clark thinks it's right to tell the people and she kind of doesn't think past that. But, they, you know, I think maybe one difference between Clark's situation in 104 and Abby in 105, besides just audience, you know, the, the crowd of of scared teenagers on the ground is a very different audience than the people on the Ark. Another difference is something about presentation, but also about outcome. So, like, Clark didn't have a plan. Clark didn't come out and say, like, here is my evidence. We need to have a trial. She came charging out and screaming accusations in Murphy's face. It it wasn't like a trial. She just she had concluded that he did it and then just went at him. So part of Clark's problem is that she is operating on you know, just like a wild assumption. Again, because she wants to believe it, I think, you know, she hates Murphy too. Like she is also like those kids. She's ready to just be like, fuck that guy. He murdered my best friend. And like, of course, the other part of it that we're not saying that is a huge bit of it for Clark, I think, and can't be discounted as as a factor is that this is her best friend. You know, like, of course she's emotional. This person well murdered Wells and, and she was, we just saw at the beginning of the, of the episode, she was devastated by that. Well, and there's a guilt factor, too, I think, that we really see coming up that I I feel that particularly in how hard she finds it both to be like dispassionate about Murphy, but also then after Charlotte confesses in how hard it is for her to be kind to Charlotte in a way that Bellamy can still do because Bellamy doesn't have the same, you know, relationship with Wells and like, you know, like Charlotte kind of getting scared and reaching out for Clark's hand and Clark snatching it away. Like, don't fucking touch me. You know, God, (laughs) I had forgotten about that. Oh my God. One of the top 10 Clark has no fucking chill Griffin. No chill. It's like, she's still a child. Yeah. (laughs) I think, One of the done beautifully subtly, I think, running through this episode and a little bit in the next episode, too. Her grief for Wells and also, I think, her guilt over not being there, over the lost time, over how long she spent hating him. All of those things have basically combined to, like, ramp up every emotion up to 11. Her anger at Murphy is heightened. Her resentment of Charlotte is heightened. Her grief and terror when Charlotte dies and, like, adding another death to her conscience is heightened. I think that's part of why she's drawn so strongly to Finn. The desire for escape is heightened. Like everything's ramped up and amplified because she's operating at this like high pitch of really devastating emotion and she's not processing it or talking about it. She's just letting it sort of explode out of her in all of these very harsh ways. I think that what we're watching in this episode and increased lack of chill on like all fronts is all of these sort of heightened emotions that don't have a safer, healthy outlet finding very kind of tortured ones. Yeah, no, I agree. But I mean, it also totally fits with the, you know, the Clark and Bellamy that we come to know over three seasons, which is that Clark, as we've talked about, when she has a resentment against someone it is intense you know and like and when she decides to forgive it's over but but she she has no chill when it comes to hating someone or being angry at someone whereas bellamy i think has he's always able i mean this is you know the first time we see it but it's something that's consistent about bellamy you know he's he's always able to have empathy and compassion and gentleness for people that he cares about when they've done something terribly wrong. And 
for Bellamy, the people that he's able to do that for are maybe more limited. Like Clark seems like when she decides to forgive you, it's done. And that's kind of like across the board. And Bellamy, maybe like the the sort of number of people or the group of people who he could do that for is is smaller. But, you know, like Octavia, Clark and Charlotte, I think all of them, we see these sort of moments where something terrible happens or they've done something and he can kind of let it go and focus on their emotional needs. Yeah, I think Charlotte is the first person that we really see him decisively and unequivocally expanding that inner circle to include. I think like he's still negotiating where he's at with Clark in a way, but the circle of, you know, who Bellamy will take a bullet for that when we first meet him is only Octavia expands over these couple of episodes to also include Charlotte because the risks that he takes to keep Charlotte safe, his willingness to overlook what she did, the fact that he's always, you know, he gets down on her level, he speaks in a gentle voice, he's so kind, you know, he he knows that she's afraid, he keeps saying like, I'm not going to leave you, you're going to be okay, we're going to fix this. And and that she calls match like, I'm not your sister. Yeah. She understands what he's doing. But she's the first other character, I think, besides Octavia, that we really see him fully kind of pull into that. You are now my child and I am your dad. You know? <laughs> yep, yep. And I will pick you up and carry you away from the mob with literal torches and pitchforks because you are my precious baby. Like she's the first person besides Octavia that we see that that's a trait that he's capable of having for more than one person. It isn't that yeah. he only has this for Octavia because he only can have it for Octavia. It's that she Octavia has been his only person. But the way that he sort of folds Charlotte in is the first real like dad Bellamy moment where it's like, this is just who he is. And it's all been focused on Octavia because that was his responsibility and she's who was right there. But the person that he is picks up lost puppies and wants to take them home and hold them and keep them safe, even at sort of extraordinarily irresponsible cost to himself. And it's the beginning. So really, I think, kicks off that arc where he becomes a leader figure in a different way, in in a way that's more care-based and less, I am the law, the buck stops with me, kind of, if that makes sense. Right, yeah, yeah, no. I mean, I think this is the first time we see him take responsibility for the life of one of of someone who isn't Octavia and we see what that responsibility means to him you know and and obviously like over the course of the season that will continue to expand but i think one of the reasons why it's a slow process for Bellamy is because when somebody enters that circle there's very little on the scale between you are not one of my people therefore you are you know i, I will do nothing for you to like you are one of my people I will give everything and do everything to keep you alive, you know? So so because the way that he attaches to people is so intense, that's part of the reason why it's so difficult and, and maybe even scary for him to expand that, or why he's so cautious about expanding it. Because it takes so much out of him. Trying to imagine what it would be like to, you know, like love and care for people at that pitch all the time. And then one person and then have that become a hundred people there's this picture of of like one of my favorite pictures in existence 
of this really like terrified and harried looking hen sitting on a nest full of puppies being like, how the fuck did this happen? But I got to keep him alive. And like, I think about that picture all the time when I think about Bellamy with the delinquents. Just like, I don't know what the fuck these things are. I didn't want them, but they're in my nest, which means that I got to keep them alive. And I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I have to do it. They're making weird noises. Like, <laughs> like that is Bellamy and the delinquents. It really is. We also see some other typical things for Bellamy. For instance, when everything goes south and, and Finn and Clark run off with Charlotte and Murphy gets his mob together to go find her, Bellamy takes off into the woods on his own to find Charlotte and save her, which I think, you know, what that means is that there's a whole camp of kids who are not part of any one of these groups. And Bellamy is basically just like, he drops everything, he leaves all the other kids, and he runs out there on his own, all alone, to prevent Murphy from killing Charlotte. And that's such a Bellamy thing to do. Dropping everything in the second episode of season three and like running after Clark because he's got to save her at all costs. Going after Octavia in the next episode because he's got to save her at all costs. Even Mount Weather. This is fairly typical, the thing that Bellamy does. And again, it's not necessarily always the smartest thing. It's very, it's very dangerous and suicidal in some cases. But I mean, that's, that is something that he typically does, which is a kind of an interesting contrast Keep in mind when we get to We Are Grounders Part 1, where Finn and Clark are missing, and Jasper keeps saying, we have to go after them, and Bellamy says, we can't drop everything for a couple of people, we gotta stay here and protect the group. And, and it made me realize, that's Bellamy, I think, trying to be Clark, that's Bellamy trying to be the leader he thinks he's supposed to be, when it's fairly clear that his instinct is like, gotta get the people. These are the sort of like the roots of the Bellamy that he's going to become. Yeah, and really, I think when we get to that scene at the cliff that to me in a lot of ways is the real decisive and emphatic because it happens in front of witnesses beginning of the Bellamy and Clark co-leader relationship that we're going to see over the course of the next three seasons when they establish like not just to each other but to that subset of everybody else who's gathered there like we are the two people who are in charge it doesn't necessarily mean that that relationship is always easy but it's sort of the beginning of that unquestioned acceptance or less questioned acceptance um, by the rest of the group that somewhere in the middle between pure Clark and pure Bellamy is the best way everyone's going to survive. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's interesting in this episode, it started in 103 at the end with Adam. But this episode is the first one where we really see the show itself framing Bellamy and Clark as the two main voices, you know, like it was kind of set up with with the way that they're sort of unknowingly both complicit in Charlotte. But in this one, starting in that tent when they find the knife, you know, the argument about what to do about this new evidence about what happened to Wells, it's between Bellamy and Clark. There are other people there and they're kind of like weighing in occasionally, but it's really like a battle of the wills between Bellamy and Clark. And this is the first time that they've really been directly framed like that as these are the two main people here. These are the two main leaders. These are the two main characters. And what's happening in the story is a story about how these two characters are relating to each other and how they're going to sort of find an equilibrium. And I think part of the significance of that scene is that Jasper and Octavia bring the evidence to Clark and Bellamy together first. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah. It's the first reflection of outside people that within the group that certain members of them are beginning to kind of collectively defer to not one or the other, but to both of them as the leaders. 
Yeah, they sort of understand, like, these are the two decision makers. So they're going to have to make a decision. And this is the first time, really, that Bellamy and Clark have had a decision that they have to make that, that is presented to both of them at the same time. Right, exactly. They've been sort of, like, at odds for most of this time. So I think the story on the ground... I mean, this is this is really the story of how the delinquents come together as a real group. By the end of this episode, I think, for the most part, they've established the the delinquent group as a kind of somewhat more functional group than they were before. Like you said, you know, like there's no more chaos and stuff. And so in that sense, it really like this is a this is a Belarc story. You know, it's about Bellamy and Clark and and how this incident pushes them together. Or, or you know, like, I think it really sort of set up, sets up why they need each other. You know, they're like two sides of a coin. They, they, they're they better together than apart. Because, you know, and it's funny because when they first hang Murphy, you know, when, when Bellamy kicks that stool out from underneath him and Clark is, you know, screaming at him, how could you? And he says, this is on you, princess. So they're, they're like accusing each other. You know, they're still sort of in a position where they each think that they were right I mean, I think maybe in that moment they don't think that they're right anymore, but they're still kind of hanging out to their positions and blaming the other one for what happened. And then to sort of see as the episode goes on, you know, Clark has that conversation with Finn in the bunker when they're talking about Charlotte. And Finn says, you you couldn't possibly have known what would happen. And she said, Bellamy knew, you know, so like Clark's starting to kind of recognize Bellamy has some abilities that are really important that I don't have. He's able to understand what saying things to this group is going to do. And I can't do that. You know, I think Bellamy, in his horror at the way that they turn on Charlotte and, and the way that that Murphy kind of turns against him, you know, and, and things kind of get chaotic. He recognizes that he's responsible for this, too. He feels responsible for Charlotte and what's happening so that by the time they get to that cliff, I think they're both kind of in a position to be able to recognize like, OK, like the decisions that I made did not work and they got us to this terrible moment. They led to Charlotte. You know, I think he's the only person who really kind of clearly understands her own culpability. You know, they're all kind of fighting about all these various ways of thinking about what she's done. And she's like, I committed murder. And that fact has made all this stuff happen. So, you know, so by the time they get there, I think Clark is finally able to recognize the way that this happened cannot happen again. We need to find a way to make some kind of functioning society, some kind of functioning leadership where we have a decision-making process that isn't just chaos. Either Bellamy's chaos, which is whatever the hell we want, whatever the mob wants, or Clark's chaos, which is basically just like, uh, you know, like I mean, she said, let the people, the people have the right to know. So she's kind of, she's she's handing the decision-making over to the to the mob, but in a different way. You know, like she sees it as like democracy versus chaos but ultimately it both in both cases it's kind of like chaotic so they recognize like okay we, what we need is to have some sort of like core some sort of system for making decisions and the way to do that is to cooperate but i also think it's really interesting to go back to the murphy as scapegoat thing i hated murphy so much oh my god time I watched yeah. this like i remember how fucking satisfying it was to watch him get exiled and like I didn't come around until season two where he's just kind of funny but like re-watching it subsequently you know the more I rewatch it the more I realize like Murphy not that he's at all justified in coming back and killing people in cold blood but at this point he has not done that Murphy gets totally screwed in this and like don't get me wrong he is a terrible terrible person for demanding the death of Charlotte but he didn't actually kill her 
She chose to die. He's culpable. He has some responsibility for her death, but probably not a whole lot more than Clark Bellamy. Well, and you can see on his face when she goes over the cliff that he's just as horrified as everybody else is. That is not what he wanted to happen. It's a really profound kind of moment of horror and realization for him too, watching that happen in front of him. Because when he's like, you know, because then when Bellamy comes after him, we see him kind of floundering. You know, you get the feeling that when he was going after Charlotte, it's because he was angry that she wasn't being punished the way that he was. I don't think he really totally thought through what he was going to do with her when he got her or what it would mean when she died. So being confronted with that, I think is sort of like it's more it's becomes real in a way it hadn't really been for him before. Well, if you look at it through the lens of like what we know of Murphy now that his kind of driving ethos is always at any given moment doing what he needs to do to survive for himself. And and survive, you know, psychologically as much as physically. But uh, all that being said, you know, so so this makes him like a, a, a classic scapegoat because he's bearing symbolic responsibility for everything that has gone, all this horrific stuff that's gone wrong that day. He is, he's bearing the punishment for it. He's also a, like a classic scapegoat in the sense that he absolutely must be expelled from society in order for that society to keep on functioning. And that is both because Murphy is really is a problem. You know, he's like, he's a force of chaos. And so I think one thing that's underlying Clark's decision or her suggestion of banishment, the reason that they do do it is because there is, there is no way for them to contain Murphy. They weren't really containing him before. Bellamy was doing his best, but it didn't really work. There's no way for the him, them to contain him when he gets back. So he's he poses a challenge to them in a way that requires him to be sort of cast out. But then also, if they were to bring him back, the way that he's kind of taken on or become symbolic to the group of all of this stuff, the way that they reacted to him. If they brought him back, it would also mean that essentially that kind of injustice and cruelty cannot be contained and will not be contained. You know, so he also has to be sort of cast out in order to, to it, for the sake of the cohesion of the group, because of the way that symbolically by doing that, they're saying, we are drawing a line. We are saying, here are the things you cannot do. One of them is you cannot kill people. But Murphy didn't do that. The other thing is you cannot be Murphy. You know, that is you cannot be cruel. You cannot be chaotic. You cannot be defiant. You cannot be all out for yourself. So like everything that Murphy has come to symbolize both in terms of behavior and values and the kinds of behavior that are acceptable and, and and aren't by banishing him they're also sort of like purging that stuff and setting up the terms under which they're going the sort of group is going to exist going forward i agree with all that but i also think that one of the other really important facets to that is it, it's not just significant that they're banishing murphy because they cannot control murphy it's because they also cannot they real are acknowledging they can no longer control the group's response to Murphy. Yes, 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 absolutely, absolutely. So yeah. it sort of plays in both sides where it's like, it isn't just sort of his individual actions, it's the way that his actions incite a response among everybody else that is too big for them to control, that there's sort of a quarantine aspect to the exile, I think, as well, where it's like, we need to separate this person from the rest of the group because when he and the group are combined, it's explosive in both directions. It's acknowledging that the mob mentality 
it's like a fire that spreads faster than they can put it out, you know, and that Murphy really stokes it in some in some ways that, you know, that we'll, then we'll see again when he comes back. Yeah. And, you know, to that end, the, the title of the episode is really appropriate in a number of ways. So Murphy's Law like obviously means the worst thing that can happen will, and it does. But then also, if you think about Murphy's Law as being like, this is the, this is the episode that is about sort of the culmination of all of these sort of rules and practices and, and tacit laws that they've developed around Murphy as a kind of like symbol of chaos and whatever the hell we want. Murphy's Law is the thing that existed before that had to be sort of overturned and rejected. Clark and Bellamy both had to face the limitations and the problems with the, their approaches so far. And the only way that they could do that and then get a, get a handle on it and, and establish a new set of, of norms is by Bellamy saying to the rest of Murphy's lynch mob, you can either come back and follow me or you can go with him. So they're, they're saying like, here is the consequence if you continue to be out of control the way that Murphy is, then you're going to be cast out. So so it is both preventing that sort of chaos from out, breaking out again because Murphy is just like, that's what he does. But also then saying to everyone, like Clark says, there have to be consequences. So now there's consequences. And then we get that last lovely shot of Clark and Bellamy side by side coming back and telling the people what happened but not as a wildly accusatory anything, but just saying like, here's what happens and here's our decision and why we made it. You kind of see the first blending of Bellamy and Clark's styles together where they sort of reach a conclusion, what the right thing is to do, and then how to communicate that to the group. Oh, there's a whole wristband thing. We should talk about the wristband thing. Uh, that's actually a good segue to the arc stuff. So there's running through... This whole episode, well, really beginning in the last episode with Clark's realization that it was Abby and not Wells who told Jaha what Jake was going to do, um, which then leads to another sort of textbook Clark Griffin has no chill, where she frames it as Abby having killed her father. Then her decision to both as kind of a fuck you to Abby and also genuinely, and this is the thing that redeems it, because Monty needs a working wristband. That she takes hers off. That's the inciting incident at the very top of the episode that propels the sense of urgency that really drives what's happening with Abby and Raven, which we'll come back to in, in a second. But but down on the ground, we see kind of interstitial moments in between all of the, the Murphy and Charlotte and Clark Bellamy storyline that's really the ground A story we see bits and pieces of you know Monty working Jasper and Octavia kind of hanging out and helping him the episode sort of bookended by the wristbands kind of linking the the ground and the arc so the beginning we see Abby and Jackson watch Clark's wristband go out that we know is, of course, Clark taking it off and giving it to Monty. But Abby and Jackson don't know that. And it sort of springboards the, you know, the Abby Raven story into action. And then at the end, that's bookended by the swelling music and the sort of hopeful feeling and everyone coming together and standing around and Monty telling Jasper, you know, do you want to do the honors? Intercut with Jackson watching everyone's vital signs. And then that horrible moment where Jasper touches the thing to the other thing. I don't know how the science of it all works. And then everyone's wristbands short out all at once. And it's just a devastating end to this episode. I was thinking as I was watching these two episodes, what a phenomenal job they do 
of building tension and like escalating tension and heightening the stakes. I remember watching them both the first time and you're so on the edge of your seat with this sort of race against time to prevent the culling. And every potential thread of some connection between the arc and the ground that could stop that from happening, you watch them get snapped one by one. So at first you have a few wristbands going out and you have Clark's wristband going out. And then at the end of this, you have now there is no more communication. And then going into episode five, then we see Raven and her radio being negated as an option because of Bellamy, which we'll get to. And then finally you see the flares showing up just too late. So it's like all of the things that Abby on the Ark and Clark on the ground are trying to establish communication, trying to stop this thing from happening and watching them flicker out and and die one by one structurally it's so well executed but it, it's it's underpinned emotionally so well that every single one of those is a devastating loss like that moment where we watch jackson watch all of the screens blink out at once and seeing the fort sort of fall out on the ground is just awful i had forgotten that it's right after that moment it's like right in the wake of the realization that now everyone on the ark must think that they're dead that we see Finn kind of begin to flip out and that that's also the spur that draws like him and Clark together, which in some way makes it almost worse because we know what Clark doesn't know is that in the moment he's thinking about Raven. So it's literally like Raven's going to think that I'm dead and the very next decision that he makes is to have sex with Clark. Yeah, which is like, what the fuck? It made it even more upsetting in hindsight. I I find it, it makes it impossible to root for that relationship, knowing what we now know about the fact that what's in his mind in that moment is that his girlfriend will think that he's dead. But like Clark says, like he didn't take off the wristband. Like he was still holding on to hope of Raven coming down. I find it really troubling that those two emotional moments for Finn are put back to back with each other. I think that's a upsetting choice. How do you solve a problem like Finn Collins? (laughs) She's singing the song. I love the song. So there's like two possibilities, I think, for kind of what was like the motivation for Finn in that decision. One possibility is that he really wanted to sleep with Clark and he was just holding back because of the possibility that he might get back, that Raven might come down or something. And then as soon as that gone, that was gone, he was like, well, fuck it, whatever. Which, you know, is sort of kind of crappy, but whatever. And then the other one is that he was just so upset about losing contact with the Ark because he wasn't going to see Raven again. And Clark was just there, you know, so like the joking that they do in 105 where he was like, well, you were, you know, it was it was just that you were there for me. Um, that was true. He was just kind of like upset and she was there. And so it happened and but then that was sort of like doesn't make sense you know then it's sort of like well when did you actually develop feelings for Clark right right yeah that's sort of belied by everything that happens after where what Raven spots immediately I think we're meant to believe is that his feelings for Clark are strong enough that it makes Raven feel like he has already chosen Clark over her so it's just kind of it's just kind of gray and as with a lot of things with Finn I think it's not really clear because I don't think they really thought that much about his specific motivation. That ending is a mismatch for the whole episode because it's so out of line with what the episode is otherwise about. You know, like the episode is not about Clark and Finn. 
It's about Clark and Bellamy. So it really should, like, the arc of the episode ends with that shot of Clark and Bellamy telling the group what happened with Wells and Charlotte. It it feels tacked on, you know? Like, it doesn't feel like it's, like, really a part of the episode. And then the other thing that bothers me about it, and this goes a little bit, actually, this to go back to the to the wristband thing. So we talked at the beginning of the podcast about the ways that this episode does really pay tribute to Wells. It sort of recognizes posthumously how wonderful he was in life and also gives testament to how how important he is even in his death, that it sort of like reverberates throughout. But there's a couple places where that is weirdly absent. And one of them is when Clark gets the idea to take off the wristband because she wants to hurt Abby. It goes straight from her standing at the grave to the dropship and she gets to take it off and she's kind of walking away with a little smile on her face. And that feels like tonally a little off to me because it just sort of looks like, well, now I'm over it. I made my mom sad. You know, I get what they're doing with it and it makes sense for Clark. But the way that that was played was a little bit funky but then I think the sex scene is another is another tonal issue where like you have this whole episode which starts with mourning Wells's loss and then all this horrific stuff happens Wells is, has been murdered and then Murphy or uh, excuse me like the whole Murphy thing happens and Charlotte throws herself off a cliff really deeply upsetting and then they lose contact with the arc you know they, they lose all hope of contact with the arc and then it ends with them having sex. And I think maybe part of the problem is if it were played entirely as just kind of like desperation sex in the way that Raven and Bellamy is is played later on, where it's like, we're just kind of at our emotional wit's end. I don't know what else to do. So let's do this like patently stupid thing. And it were played like that by the narrative. This is another issue of why it's confusing. Because like in terms of character motivation, that's that seems to be where it's coming from. But then it's also played as a consummation of Clark and Finn's relationship. And the first scene that we get in scene five, in episode five is that like happy little, like suddenly like they've forgotten that they were devastated by the events of literally like hours ago. And they're just like, hee hee. I mean, I think this is why it feels jarring tonally in a lot of ways is because of the entry point into like what leads into them kissing is Finn is upset and Clark says, you're not alone, you're not alone. And it's like, well, what? When did Finn's interior journey of feeling lonely become a driving... Right? Like, yes, why... I never thought about that before, but you are so right. Like, if he was comforting her, I might buy it. But it's framed like she's reassuring him in a way where it's like, I have no investment at this point in time in Finn's inner journey because that has not at any that's not been given to us. We know that Raven through visual cues and we yeah. heard her sort of like we 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 know much more about their relationship from Raven's side of it, from the kind of implications of the choices that she's making, the things that she does and doesn't say. But then it's like it, it, the only real direct tie is that visual shot of her necklace next to the little deer sculpture that he makes for Clark. His role in the narrative isn't doing the same work that Raven's is, where we're being shown there's a thing she's not saying. Yes, exactly. We're never, ever shown on his end that there is a girlfriend he's not talking about. Right, Where, whereas everything that drives Raven in her story with Abby is making explicit, even though we don't hear who, 
that she she takes this on because she has somebody else she loves on the ground and the stakes are exactly as high for her as they are for Abby. But we never see that from Finn's side. And so it's just this jarring, like where she's like, you're not alone, you're not alone. And I'm like, what? What? Yeah, at literally no point in the show to that moment has yeah. Finn ever expressed or shown a concern about being alone, particularly a concern about being alone as being defined as being isolated from the Ark. He's the first one who tried to take off his fucking wristband. That's how Bellamy found out about the wristband thing because they're all the like, Finn had the scratches on it, and Clark said, "Were you trying to take this off?" And then she told him why he shouldn't. Like. Finn was trying to get the fucking wristband off in the pilot. There is no setup for this. I hadn't thought about it before, but you're absolutely right. Like, that's why it feels so weird. She and the show are acting like this is some sort of big, huge, emotional resolution of a thing that is never a thing. Is it possible that they wrote more of that or that there was more of that that was filmed or, you know, on the cutting room floor? I don't know. But it but what they put on the screen, it comes nowhere. out of nowhere. I didn't really sort of red flag it until I was rewatching it this time. I was thinking like, what a bizarre thing for Clark to say. <laughs> right, right, yeah. And also, and like now, now I had never really thought about it before, but now I'm actually getting really mad that that moment is is about Clark comforting Finn instead of Finn comforting Clark because it makes her look like she's forgotten everything that's happened that day. Like she's forgotten Wells and Charlotte. So it really does a disservice to Clark's character because suddenly she's just like, I got to comfort Finn. Like she's not even thinking about anything else. And it loses a, a, a perfectly wonderful opportunity to give her that growth, you know, for, and, and, and Finn was trying to, it, it would even, it would be a better bookend because Finn was trying to, cheer her up over Wells at the beginning of the episode, you know, and she was so concerned about that. And now, and, and and with the wristband thing, she took off the wristband to punish her mother temporarily because the idea was that that wristband would make it possible for her to then subsequently let her know that she's alive. So like Clark should be devastated that she did this thing, you know, at the beginning of the episode on the premise that it was going to solve the communication problems and it didn't, you know, so it's like, it is both, unfounded and bizarre for Finn's character to say what he does and also completely misses a much better opportunity to work through some of those emotional uh, or to sort of like wrap up the emotional arc that Clark had for that episode. It's a problem that I think recurs a few times where the show, I think in, in service of a romantic story that they want to be about the romance. I, th I think that they, they don't give the audience credit for being able to handle a lot of ambiguity. Like we talked about, you know, in in season three, there there is there is a totally beautiful and believable arc where you could have Clark's relationship with Lexa unfold exactly as it does that doesn't require her to forget that her mom exists or to to forget that she just walked away from like all her people and everyone she loves in mortal danger. And then like we cut to her like sketching while Lexa naps, you know, and I and I think that I think it's the same thing here. They pull their punches at the last minute with the emotional complexity of sex and relationships where it's like it can only be about sex and romance in that moment and then we'll come back to the bigger story later but like that's not what relationships are like for people you know and and I feel like a version of that story that I would totally buy if what you need is to get Clark and Finn in that moment to having sex at that point in the episode I think it could be kind of fascinating 
to allow that parallel of both of them having the same kind of conversation, like the reverse of the conversation that Raven and Abby have been having, you know, where Clark is talking about her mom, Finn is talking potentially obliquely about like, you know, a person left like that, that it's an emotional bonding moment for them in a sort of parallel inverse to the thing that really connects Abby and Raven in this really sort of fundamental way. And then it becomes about both of them becoming emotionally vulnerable with each other in a way that then leads to the kissing and the sex happening. But that feels grounded in the reality of what has just happened to them. They've both lost something. Instead of really feeling like they got to the part on the board where they had broken the story where it says, now sex happens in order to motivate what happens in the plot next. And they're just kind of like, well, I guess we have to have the sex scene. And then it's just like dropped in out of the sky, you know? And I don't know if this is just me being a total feminist killjoy, but in a way that feels kind of like misogynist, asking Clark to do emotional labor when she's the person the thing really happened yeah. to. Like that. Yes. It gets under my skin right. in that right. way. This is why Finn is the fucking worst. This is <laughs> why I just like, as a character, like I just have such a problem with everything that he does and represents. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. I'm just losing it. <laughs> I know. I know. I think one of the one of the few things about this show that feels insufficiently matured in season one has to do with the writing choices of a couple, not all, of a couple of the male characters in ways where they're not really pushing hard against those gender stereotypes yeah. As a whole, when you take all three seasons together, one of the things I love the most about this show in the way that I think it really successfully counteracts gender stereotype, half of it is the thing we talk about all the time, which is badass women who are flawed and complex and interesting and a range of ages and ethnicities and sexual orientations and a real diversity of like badass ladies. But the flip side of that coin that's just as important is emotionally vulnerable, complex men. Yes, Men yes, who can definitely. be weak, who can feel things, who can fail. Who can cry. Who can cry. The male-male relationships that are really emotionally vulnerable. The other uh -huh. half of that feminist equation is that the men have equal amounts of nuance. Like the nuance is not gendered. Yes. They're, they're not there in the first half of the season. And I think you're right. That is primarily a problem with Finn and with Bellamy. And with Jasper a little too, I think. Jasper a little too. Oh, yes. And Jasper, that horrible, like, low-hanging low fruit comment that he's going to make. Yeah. It's the boys sexualizing the girls. It's also the show going like the lazy route of doing things like establishing Bellamy as alpha male through showing him with two as girls in his bed, two girls in his bed, or like, you know, even gratuitously showing his sexual conquest in the second episode, you know, because if you take a step back from sort of judging the characters as if they were people and just think about it as a narrative, this is this is the narrative kind of like taking the lazy way out and being like, well, you know, how do you know, like alpha male asshole leader guy? Well, he fucks a lot of girls. Right, right. Yeah, he's shirtless with his arm around a hot girl and a gun in his waistband. It's a Michael Bay movie at that point. You know what I mean? I think part of why it really takes me until like the culling and the aftermath of the culling to really pull me in and it's because Bellamy and Kane's vulnerability in the wake of the culling and the way that we see that emotional resonance continue to play out to me is the first really decisive step this show takes in saying the emotional vulnerability of men in addition to the powerful leadershipness of women 
are two things the show is firmly committing to. And because we're not quite there yet in episode four, I think that's part of why, like, watching watching Clark have to take care of Finn's feelings. And then take off her shirt, you know, be like, I'm sorry, you're sad. Here, have my breasts. Right, right, right. Yeah. (laughs) I think part of the problem with this is I think, (laughs) I think you and I are too old to find a guy like Finn appealing. (laughs) Yes. Oh, no, that's definitely true. Yeah. I think part of it is, like, early first three episodes Octavia and season one Finn. Like, we are not who those characters are for. No. And also, because, like, we've known a lot of Finns at this point in our life. Right, And, like, everyone who is like, Finn is a douchebag. We don't find them appealing for a reason. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, like, so I think part of it, too, is as a woman who will be 35 in three weeks, I'm watching it thinking I'm hardwired to find in television shows where a woman is doing disproportionate emotional labor in a relationship or is sexualized for ways that don't feed into the story like they should which which isn't to say that there's no that there's no story underpinning for a Clark and Finn relationship because i think that there certainly could you know and should be that there's again like there's ways that that could work but it's that this way in this situation with this emotional groundwork to it I feel very strongly does not work. I think it's through a kind of like heteronormative lens yeah. in which there are certain like roles that the female partner in a male-female relationship is supposed to fulfill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it does feel a little bit out of character with the Clark that we know. And and in 105, Clark kind of lampshades that when, when they come back to camp and things, shit's hit the fan and she's like, I got distracted. I shouldn't have let myself. And, and part of what is appealing about Finn in that night for her, I think, is the fact that she's doing something that Clark wouldn't otherwise do. You know, right. it's a little bit like dangerous. Like this is, you know, she's the responsible one and she's doing something irresponsible and whatever. And so, so like they do kind of like touch on that a little bit, but I think it's not sufficiently motivated when that scene happens in 104. And then I think the other half of it that really makes it just kind of not really work for me is the way that they played in 105 the aftermath of them hooking up which started again as like we are so like overwhelmed by our desolation that we lost our chance to communicate with the arc that we have to fuck it out you know like as soon as it's done apparently they're like Problem solved. Now we're just in the postcoital bliss of young love. Yeah, yeah. And they spend like the next like three scenes sitting outside, looking at the stars, joking around, whatever. You could make a case for being like, well, it's it's escapism. Bad shit has been happening. They just want to escape. But it's not framed like that. It's clearly set up to be like, isn't this sweet, this lovely little love affair in order to get the punch when Raven arrives. But what that means is that, again, it makes it look like they have somehow managed to just completely forget everything that happened literally the day before. Clark has forgotten Wells. She's forgotten her mom. She's forgotten the wristbands. She's forgotten Charlotte. Apparently all she needs is to get boned and then she doesn't remember anything at all. They do that in service of setting up this love triangle love story for Clark. 
but they do it at the sacrifice of following through on the psychological and emotional repercussions of what has happened to Clark in 104. Yeah. That's a pattern, unfortunately, for Clark. That happens again where they're sort of like, well, we got to get this love story going, so we're just going to like zoom past this other thing. Personally, one of the reasons that those moments all that I find them really upsetting, which I fully admit is is through the filter of my own character bias, is I get frustrated anytime the show puts a, a romantic or sexual relationship in Clark's life frames it in a way that it minimizes the significance of her mother. Yeah, which again, like that's another pattern. So like this time the whole wristband thing was about her mother right. and now she's lost contact with her. And then, you know, Finn comes along and she's like, well, whatever. And then in the same thing in season three. Yeah. It ha- happens with Bellamy too there where she has this like devastating conversation with Bellamy. Um, you know, kind of loses him. She says goodbye. She begs her mother to come with her because she's so terrified of what's going to happen to her. And then literally the first scene of the next episode, it's like she is not, she apparently has forgotten all yeah, of that. Like, yeah. Doesn't bug her. You know, she's just like, I have a girlfriend, so I'm happy now, you know. It's a recurring pattern that I think doesn't allow for the potential really amazing complexity that could exist in really allowing Clark and Abby's relationship to be present and significant, even when it isn't easy or pleasant. I think that's really yeah. important. Like, it doesn't have to be all sunshine and roses. Like, we can we can dive deeply into why she's angry at her mother. I don't need to be happy all the time, but I do, it does feel like if you're going to have the female adult protagonist who's carrying on her back that whole half of the story be the, the main female protagonist's mother, let that be a driving plot thread. Because I think there's something really compelling that's lightly tapped at and not pushed as hard as I want it to be in the idea of the temporary desire to flip off her mom by taking off her wristband backfiring into potentially never being able to speak to her again and her mom dying on the arc like Clark's realization that she made a choice that both was for the good of the order by because Monty needed a wristband and also was driven by something really petty and the sort of primal anger that she had towards her mom she still is working to reestablish art communication. She still wants her mom back. She still wants her mom right. to be okay. The whole thing is predicated on the fact that at some point her mom is going to know that she's alive and she's going to talk to her again. When Finn's like, you're just doing this piss her off. And she's like, this is temporary. I want to make her feel bad for like a day or two. But I don't yeah. want her to suffocate to death on the arc because they run out of oxygen because they don't know they can live on Earth. And I think too, like if there is any relationship that you have that has the capacity for like really deep hurt and even hatred to coexist with really deep love it's apparent absolutely no matter how angry you are no matter how much you feel like you maybe can never speak to them again no matter how beyond repair a relationship might seem you will always love your parents on a kind of like primal deep level that you can't ever get over a root past. That's why being angry at them or hating them or, or not being able to have a relationship with them is so painful. Yeah. You know, it's why it's not just like breaking up with a friend that, that hurts for a while, but you'll probably kind of get over it. Like, you'll never get over losing a parent. You never get over it. Yeah. So there's so much potential there in that. In yeah. In the kind of like the anguish for Clark of hating her mother. It's a hard and terrible thing for Abby, but it's a hard and terrible thing for Clark too. I always try to sort of be be cautious as we have these conversations that I'm not telling another writer how to write their show. But it feels to me yeah. like a version of this story that allowed Clark's realization that the thing that she did had these devastatingly unintended consequences side by side with 
Finn being able to empathize with her because he's also experiencing a loss he's not ready to quite talk about with her yet because she doesn't know about Raven. You know, you get all the same story beats. You can time it out in the exact same way, but it it undergirds it with something that feels raw and real that keeps it in like it's Clark, the protagonist whose interior journey we are on in this story. The emotional roots of establishing communication with the arc are about the macro of saving humanity and bringing the Ark down to Earth and saving this 320 lives, but they're also in this very small, intimate, precise way about this mother-daughter relationship that is severed by the inability of them to find a way to communicate. That's a motivation for two people in grief to fall into bed together that I would completely buy in a way that what's given to us, I, I don't. That also... That kind of like lovey-doveyness that we get at the beginning of 105, it also really does a disservice to, to Finn because it makes it look like he really doesn't give a fuck. You know, he was like upset for a minute and then he was like, oh, well, got yeah. a new girlfriend. So Raven who? Yeah, exactly. You know, which then again, I know it's a retcon, but it minimizes the flashbacks that we get in Spacewalker. Yeah. You know, where like they're each other's whole family. They're each other's person. He's the person who's been there for her. He's willing to go to the skybox and potentially get floated when he's 18 for her. Yeah. I think that was meant to be a kind of like, this is how deeply Finn loves and this is why Finn slaughtered the grounders for Clark. But put against 105, he does not appear to have any kind of deep love or attachment for Raven. He doesn't really seem to care that much that he's never going to speak to her again after that one little paroxysm of grief. Yeah. Yeah, it's just like, it's weird. Like, that's where like the retcon doesn't quite work because of the choice that they made about kind of overselling the sort of like sweetness of the blossoming relationship with Finn and Clark that was going to be squashed when Raven arrived. I mean, I think they just really wanted to go for like the biggest gut punch they could for Clark and for the audience when Raven got down there. But I think it maybe backfired. Yeah, it could work. It comes very close to working if the bones are there. And then the way that it unfolds in actuality, I'm just like, mm. again, especially because, you know, to transition up to all of the amazing things that happen on on the arc storyline, because everything that happens is about the unmatchable badassness of Raven being the hero of that whole storyline. It also makes Ra- Finn look really bad because it's like you're watching Raven on the Ark in 104 and you're like, how could you forget about Raven? <laughs> I know. The Ark storylines in these two episodes are some of my favorite things in all of season one. The relationship between her and Abby that's introduced in 102 that really sort of that we see bearing fruit in this one of them working together you know, on the dropship, like the closeness that we've seen over the past couple of days sort of building up between them and this bond of somebody I love is on the ground. Mm-hmm. And the little glimpses that we get of the really efficient and clean way that they lay out character building. We get little hints in their conversation that they've talked about Clark a lot. I'd forgotten like the thing that prompts Raven to go to Nigel is because Abby seeing that Clark's wristband has gone out is the thing that sort of sets the ticking clock and like ramps up the sense of urgency in them getting the dropship ready. It's partly to do with stopping the culling and you know and them trying to be able to get word back before Kane has all these people executed but it's also in an immediate short term we see Abby beginning to absolutely panic that something has happened to Clark and that 
It is Raven's emotional understanding of what it means when Abby says Clark's wristband went out, that she's like, all right, I'm going to do it. And the running thread of Nigel, (laughs) one of the all-time great one-episode characters, (laughs) those great interactions, like three really great scenes that move a lot of character work forward, first for Raven, then for Abby, and then for Kane. Mm -hmm. But with Raven, what Nigel gives us is just enough information to sort of put together a huge amount of Raven's family and backstory about her mother. She and Nigel clearly have a relationship. They've clearly been down this road before. There's a code name, you know, like, tell Nigel it's the little bird. So we get a glimpse that Raven sort of hangs out in, like, the Ark underbelly. And it's also kind of our first look at, like, that an Ark black market exists. Yeah. We see three different primary characters interacting with Nigel as kind of the face of that three really different ways. But this is sort of the first mention that we get of Raven's mom, where Nigel's willing to give her a pressure regulator basically in exchange for, like, pimping Raven out for sexual favors, which Raven won't do. And then Nigel's saying, your mom would have taken that deal. It's little moments like that that really lay the groundwork for what everything that Raven does is in aid of Finn being the only relationship in her life that she really can has to hold on to. You know, because for most of the, the arc story so far, we've really been with the elite. Right. You know, we've been with the Chancellor and the Council and people who were the privileged, as Bellamy put it in the pilot, for their whole lives. That's really the only, like, version of the arc that we've seen. So this is also, like, a nice little glimpse into parallel black market economy that sort of frames the lives of the people who aren't in that privileged class. Yeah. In that ruling class. And and that someone like Raven has risen to prominence because of her brains and how great she is, but she's still sort of tied in. Like the rest, a lot of her life has been sort of uh, defined by people like Nigel. Nigel is like a, pr- a problem for Kane because Nigel is the leader of this parallel arc society. But the thing that comes up in all of those interactions with Nigel is that Kane knows what Nigel's doing and can't get her for it. Right. There's yeah. a power hierarchy of the Ark Underworld, too, where Nigel has, through whatever means, made herself invulnerable. Yeah. It's another sort of example of like the capriciousness of how law and order works on the Ark. She's like the mafia Don, you know, like they're only going to get her on like tax evasion. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. She's like untouchable. Everybody knows it. Abby's horror when she realizes that's who Raven went to because now, of course, Nigel has something on them. And then Abby breaking the law sneaking morphine out of the clinic going there with something to trade and Nigel suddenly realizing that a member of the council like voluntarily coming in seeking out her services now has given her power over Abby that she then leverages with Kane so we're seeing in just one episode in just one minor character who just has three or four scenes we get this really clear picture of this whole other world that exists and the way that it has its own power structure and its own rules and its own way of operating and its own leaders that coexist with the characters we've been interacting with and that Raven navigates both of those worlds really strategically. And then the consequences of pissing off Nigel or of Nigel's taking this opportunity to make a power player get what she wants culminate in not only... Abby being arrested because Nigel rats her out, but the part that she sold them was busted in the first place. All three of Nigel's scenes are so fascinating for the way that they give us a really startling, I think, new 
facet of all of those characters. So for Raven, I think what Nigel brings out is the, the way that she that she really cruelly pokes at Raven's mother, Raven's relationship with her mother, the kind of person that her mother was, and really I think is is pressing on what she knows to be a very sensitive wound. And I think what we get out of Abby is we see a different side of lawbreaker rebel Abby where she's not just flouting Kane in these public ostentatious kind of fuck you ways but that we're seeing her being devious and sneaky in a way that comes up a lot you know as sort of a recurring Abby trait of her being willing to do anything working around the law and inside the law and kind of also I think not caring who she gets in trouble you know because Jackson's the one that has to answer for the missing morphine to Kane which can't have been pleasant for him (laughs) that's a very good point but she's not really thinking you know she's like very one-track mind you know it's like what do i need to do to achieve my end goal what she is a doctor is not taking into consideration is who nigel's gonna sell that morphine to is somebody who probably shouldn't have morphine or they would just get it from abby which is why jackson and raven are both horrified you gave nigel morphine like jesus what a terrible idea It's a degree of recklessness in Abby that goes sort of a step beyond just watching her go head to head with Kane in council meetings. But she also knows how to kind of navigate these, you know, backdoor ways too. But then I think in some ways, the Nigel scene that I think is the most transformative in our view of that character is the scene that she has with Kane. I think these two episodes are, were for me watching it, where Kane really first became really emotionally compelling to me because we begin to finally get some real nuance in in 104 and 105 and i think that the moment where we're sort of it's planted for us that nigel has been a thorn in kane's side for years that's given to us explicitly but when he comes to nigel and she's like you know ooh, i've got dirt on your friend abby and tells him what she knows even though we know that his headbutting and antagonism with Abby and his desire to stop Abby from going through with her crackpot plans has been sort of his driving force, you would think that from the way Nigel frames it, she's saying, I'm handing you a way to make sure that your council agenda sails right through because you can float Councillor Griffin for this shit and then you're the top dog. And the fact that his response to that, like he's sickened by the implications of that, which is really interesting because it's the first moment that we really see that the appearance they've been crafting for Kane, that he is a person who will do anything for power like these sort of implications that he's behind the shooting of Jaha which comes up again when we see Bellamy and Octavia talking about what happened that Bellamy says somebody came to me with a deal like it sort of reinforces this did Kane try to have the boss shot But that we see in his response to Nigel, he's not grateful that he's been handed a Trump card. He follows it up. He goes and looks into it. He doesn't charge right out and arrest Abby. He goes to Jackson first. He follows up the lead and then it's solid and then he has to arrest her. But he doesn't thank Nigel. He's not happy about it. And it doesn't play like he's a person for whom power and control in and of themselves are important and he says to her if it's your word against abby's everyone will believe abby which is a notable vote of confidence you know in abby so i think it re-centers us in the idea that the things that drive him are bigger than just i want to be the chancellor that that is how things look and that that maybe isn't who he is or or how things really you know really are and then also we get the first introduction of vera And the way that Vera is viewed by people like 
Nigel as being sort of a relic. There's something kind of ridiculous in it that she has this tiny little group of followers with what, you know, people clearly perceive to be kind of like a crackpot set of beliefs. And that's another sort of glimpse into another side of Ark's side that we haven't really gotten before, you know, is is sort of Vera's you know, position with the church and her role as leader. But but Nigel's calling the whole rigmarole a waste of water and Cain saying not to them. To them, it's important. And that little sort of interchange that he and Vera have where she's like, oh, you're here for church. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm actually here to like yell at a criminal. <laughs> it's so devastating. Like her face oh, right God. after that. I'm just like, oh, God. Oh. And especially knowing what we now know again of like, it's like with Wells too, because we now know how little time they have with each other. It's even more painful to watch them not take advantage of it. You just want to be like, just just take the dropper and put a couple of drops of water in the stupid tree, yeah. Kane. Come on. Go make your mom happy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that sequence, Kane and Vera and Kane and Nigel, we don't see Kane interacting with people who aren't Abby and Jaha very much. And it's interesting what a different side of him we get seeing those two women in that scene. It's like it, I think it adds some real depth and shading to his character and, and it sets us up for the real kind of emotional gut punch of what happens to him in the next couple episodes. So I think Nigel's role is surprisingly, given how little screen time she has, really important in sort of the shading that it gives us. I also wonder too a little bit with a moment with Vera that tells us where he's coming from, right? Like this is the woman who, who raised him and we also know that he used to participate in that religion and potentially believe in it at some point. And the, the thing that, that Vera is preaching is putting your faith in hope, believing that someday we are going to make it back down to the ground, that what's down there is still worth hanging on for, that there's something transcendently beautiful and important beyond just like sheer pragmatic matters of survival. Yeah. That I think interestingly sort of chimes with Abby's perspective in these early episodes. Abby's talking about sort of human connections. She's talking about family, but she's also talking about faith. You know, faith in her daughter, right? But, but, but faith, you know, she's going on faith and she's going on hope. And so that there's an interesting parallel between Abby's perspective and the ways that the kinds of arguments that she has with Cain and what Vera says. And it makes me wonder... It seems very clear from that scene or strongly implied that Cain became the person he is at this point and he got to where he is at this point by sort of consciously rejecting that. Yes. Like at some at some point, he, for whatever reason, like he thought about it and he decided that that kind of faith and hope perspective was not the right one. And he sort of committed himself to this like ruthless practicality. But what's so beautiful about that scene, you know, both both in terms of like giving us a lot more shade into Kane's character by suggesting that the that sort of path that he's on is a decision that he made consciously at some point that put distance between him and who he was and, and his mother, but also kind of gives you a little like clue into what he's hearing and feeling when he's arguing with Abby. I think he sort of so plants some seeds about like the ways that Abby is getting under his skin even now, you know, even when he's sort of still committed to his path, the reasons why Abby eventually gets through to him and he comes around to be, to see more her side. I think we start to see those, the, the kind of character seeds for that being planted here because I think, you know, there's something about Abby and the way that Abby understands him that harmonizes with this other part of him, which he's suppressing. 
one of the interesting decisively connective threads I think that we do see in a way between Cain and his mother although it manifests in this totally different way is that they're both driven by thoughts of the future of humanity in successive generations. Cain's ruthlessness comes from this belief that the choices that you make in the here and now and the sort of individual consequences of those matter less than whether those choices ultimately support the maximum number of people surviving and making it down to the ground in a future generation as possible which is the root of Vera's spiritual beliefs is that it's all about the belief that our children or our children's children will see a future that we will not see. And it's our job to keep something fundamental alive for them. And so for her, it's, I think, more of kind of an ephemeral and spiritual way. And for Kane, it's literally like, you know, no, we're going to float people to save on oxygen to keep everybody alive. Yeah, for for Kane, I think that right now his his sort of ethical ethical perspective is that you know an action can be judged good or bad based on its consequences, right? Not on like the fundamental action itself, and that's where he differs with Abby, who believes that actions can be fundamentally in and of themselves good or bad, right? Right. But I think that we have, I think that for both Kane and Vera we see that they're united in this perspective of being people who take the long view and the holistic view about all of humanity in a way where Abby is incapable in some ways of separating, the, of making that abstract because she's driven by the individual human relationships. The way that Cain talks about keeping humanity alive and the way Vera talks about preserving the legacy of this tree and of their set of beliefs for the future generations that will land on the ground you know, like, like what Jaha talks about them being a transitional generation, you know, it reminds you that everyone on the Ark just lives under the assumption that Earth is something that they will never see until the events of the pilot sort of accelerate all these things suddenly into happening, but that nobody had any expectation that they or even their kids would live to see that day. You know, like kind of like that Moses in the promised land, like your job is to get your people there, but God has told you that you're not going to see it. And so your job is just to lay the groundwork for your people and you accept that it's not something that will ever happen to you. You know, knowing what we know about season two and season three, Kane, and how deeply he falls in love with Earth, how the land and how his sort of love of grounder culture and realizing how much bigger the world is than the arc that he grew up on. I think season three, Kane, has a lot of season one Vera in him in some ways that don't come out, you know, in, in the world that he lives in, there is no room for him to be that person. But he has that capacity within him because of his mother. Right. Like, it's almost like it's sometimes at certain moments he is looking at Earth through his mother's eyes. Yeah, I think so, too. I, I And I would love, you know, I would love at some point someday for this show to make that textual. Like, I'd love for us to come back to the Eden tree. I'd love for him to talk about his mom. But I feel like implicit in like, like in that scene in 303 where he's looking at Polis and, he's, and he says, like, when I dreamed of the ground, it was empty. What that tells us is that something of, of his mom's belief I think stuck that it was something that he wondered about and thought about you know or maybe it made him sad that this was something that he just sort of assumed was never going to be his that he would never get to see the way that he looks at that world I think Vera is silently very present we get these moments where we see aspects of Vera 
in him that I think don't come out until he's freed from, you know, sort of living an existence that makes him believe Vera's way of living was impractical. He doesn't disparage her beliefs and he's very upset at Nigel for disparaging them, but he also doesn't believe that there's any practical use for them on the Ark. At least not for him, you know, I think he can see how they're important to other people, but like they're they are not relevant to his role or what he's doing. So he's kind of set them aside. Exactly. Yeah. 